following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. It's very fitting that uh, where we are in Matthew really does help us as, as we enter into this Lent season where we're preparing for uh, celebrating um, Good Friday, Jesus' death, and, and Easter, Jesus' resurrection. Um, the, w- the way it works out in Matthew, we will not actually be able to do this where I can end. It would be ideal if we could end right on you know, the resurrection on uh, Easter Sunday. However, it's not going to quite work out that way uh, it, to get all the way through. There's a lot happens between in the, in the Passion Week in Matthew. But, um, but, but in chapter 21, we are in, uh, in Jesus' last days, right, as he's preparing to go to the cross. So um, this, this morning we'll be looking at the parable of the tenants or the farmers. And so if you want to follow along, we'll be reading uh, chapter 21, verses uh, 33 through uh, 46 in the end of the chapter. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable end and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the the fruit in their season." Jesus said to them, Have you never read in scriptures, in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Um, Probably none of us really enjoys being rejected, right? Anybody like being rejected? (laughs) Anybody hoping they'd be rejected? it's 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 a very painful thing, right, to be rejected. Uh, and, and in fact, for, for uh, many of us, maybe even just the fear, the potential of being rejected is enough to, to cause us to, to do whatever we can to avoid that. I know when I was younger, when I was a, a kid, uh, I, I just was sure that any girl that I ever liked would reject me. And just the thought of that was so terrifying, I kind of just avoided girls because I figured that was safer. I would never be rejected if I never even talked to them, right? Uh, that's how that's how rejection is. We don't like it. Um, 
And maybe we watch, you know, these reality shows. And I don't, it's funny, you know, these reality shows, the whole point of a reality show is, is so we can watch people get rejected, right? You know, the round, you know, there's a round with ten people, and at the end of that round, you know, half of them are going to get rejected. And why is it we like watching that so much, right? We just watch these people, and you just see the, the agony on their face. No, you're not good enough, right? And, oh, it's painful. Uh, and, and somehow that's entertaining. I don't know how, but it's somehow it's entertaining. Maybe we feel like when we see them get rejected in front of millions, it makes our rejection not seem so bad or something. I'm not sure. Um, uh, what we see here in this story is that it's, it, it, Jesus is the rejected one. Right? God himself is rejected by uh, the leaders of Israel. And not because he didn't measure up, not because he was not good enough, uh, but ultimately because uh, by rejecting Jesus, they're showing their ultimate rejection for God, right? That, that it is in the heart of man that we reject God. Uh, and, and what's fascinating in this parable is how God himself responds to rejection, right? And so we're going to look at this. We're going to learn uh, actually about four groups. This parable tells us some things about God. Uh, it, it reveals some truth about Jesus, it reveals uh, what God is going to do in Israel. And finally, it, it, it gives some challenges to us, right? So uh, let's look at this, uh, this one, this uh, stone that was rejected. And the background, there's some, some background to this. Uh, the, uh, it really comes out of this parable. In fact, there's three parables in a row that Jesus tells, and they all come out of the confrontation between Jesus and these religious leaders who want to know by what authority Jesus is doing all these things in the temple, uh, by what authority he came in proclaiming himself king into Jerusalem, by what authority he's chasing out the merchants in the temple. And it sets up this conflict where Jesus is confronting these leaders, and he tells three parables. And we looked last week at the uh, parable of the fig tree, uh, and this week we look at the parable of the tenants, um, well, not the parable of the fig tree, cursing the fig tree and the parable of the two sons. Now this week, the parable of the tenants or the farmers, right? Um, and again, so he's talking here, he's confronting still the primarily the Jewish leaders. Still a large crowd, still lots of people watching, but this uh, parable is definitely directed toward uh, the, the leaders, uh, these leaders of the temple, the uh, chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes, right? Uh, so, so Jesus says, um, there's really no break, uh, and ideally we could, we could preach all three of these parables in one shot, but it would be a super long sermon and nobody's up for that, so we're breaking it into pieces. But, but he says, and hear this, uh, hear this parable, hear another parable, listen up. So this is really a continuation of, of uh, springing off of the last one. He says, uh, there was a master of a house, or a landowner we could call, who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to its tenants and went into another country. Now, for those of us who uh, live in the modern world where uh, uh, none of us probably have, have had our own vineyard. Anybody had their own vineyard? Anybody? Anybody? See, not really common these days. Like, oh, yeah, of course I had a vineyard. So, you know, for us, this is all kind of new stuff. We were going, like, dug a wall. Why does it take a wall? Like, I planted a garden, and I've never had a wall around my garden, right? And wine presses and guard, that's the best one is a guard tower. Like, like how does this work, right? Well, 
Uh, we may not understand all that's going on. Certainly Jesus' audience would have. And it's interesting that uh, many of the chief priests were pretty wealthy people. And uh, they were um, kind of the scenario after the exile, after the Babylonians had drugged the Israelites off many hundreds of years before this. When they returned, the first groups that came back were the priests. Right? And uh, so the way this worked was uh, they really lost their land, but there was land available. And, uh, but not like it was before where they were guaranteed, where everybody was guaranteed property. In this era, uh, the first, it was kind of first come, first serve. And so what happened was by the time Jesus came along, there were landowners who had lots of property. And interestingly, many of them uh, were priests. Uh, they were wealthy and they were well-to-do and they oftentimes held uh, big tracts of land. Uh, but they lived in Jerusalem uh, to be near the temple. So they were oftentimes the landowners who would have tenant farmers taking care of their vineyards, right? And so in this story, the, the people that, uh, that the priests would likely identify with would be the landowner, because that was them, right? They were the ones uh, renting their property, their, their, their vineyards to other people. Uh, but this particular landowner um, kind of goes all out. And we, we, you know, we kind of read over the wall and the, the, the tower and the wine press and say, yeah, that's all nice. But, but here's how it worked. Like, uh, when you were going to, and just think of it this way, you're gonna, you have some property and you want to lease it out to some tenant farmer. You have two options. One, you just lease the land and you say, you have to develop it, Right. If you want to grow crops on it, if you want to plant a vineyard, you just do that. You go plant a vineyard. I'm just giving you the land, but I want uh, some of the profit, right? But that's not what this landowner does. He actually develops fully the vineyard, and it's a lot of work, right? He plants, he actually plants the vines, and he builds a wall. The wall would protect uh, animals from coming and, and destroying the grapes or eating them uh, or messing up the, the, the vines, um, Digs, digs a wine press, and this is kind of first-rate first technology. Right? And to have a wine press right in the vineyard made it a lot easier, right? It was convenient, because you didn't have to take the grapes somewhere else to do this. It was right there. Everything was there. Uh, and and, and the, the watchtower was kind of the, the final piece of this whole thing, that it was a first-class vineyard, right? He invests a lot of money into this land, and makes it really uh, what, what, what in our thinking would be a high-tech operation. And we know that uh, it would take four years for grapes to produce, or uh, vines to produce their first crop of grapes. And so it's even possible that he waits until they're starting to produce grapes before he, he leases it out. And he finds some tenant farmers who come and uh, offers it to them. And, and it's really... I mean, you're just walking into a ready-made business, right? It's all set up. It's ready to go. All they have to do is wait for that first crop, and they start making money, right? So this is a pretty good deal. Uh, and on top of that, when we understand how things worked in that time, in that era, uh, there were several classes of people. And, of course, there were landowners. They had uh, lots of land, and they had, of course, the wealth, and that's what this landowner is. Uh, but he didn't have to necessarily... Uh, create a tenant farm, right? He didn't need to lease it to farmers. Another option for him would have actually just have been to buy some slaves and have assigned slaves to take care of it. And it would have meant that he would have got a lot more profit 
Uh, the slaves would have cost them something, but the slaves don't have freedom, right? The slaves don't uh, get, get paid at just a minimum wage, and, and the owner would, would be in control of everything. And they would just do his bidding, and when the harvest came, he would get the whole harvest. He would get all the profit, and the sl- slaves would, uh, uh, would just get their livelihood, right? Very little compensation and no freedom. Or another option for him would have been to uh, actually... Uh, just hire day laborers. Uh, now, day laborers would have been a little better than slaves because they would have had some freedom and some choice. Like they could decide to work for him or not work for him, whereas a slave has no choice. Uh, but actually, the laborers were probably uh, oftentimes poorer than the slaves, right? Because the slaves had constant steady income. I mean, the, the landowner had to take care of them all, all year long. The, the day laborers only got a day's wages, so when you worked, you got money. When you didn't work, uh, no money. And oftentimes they got paid just enough to buy food for the day, right? So, so that really was not a, a much better option. But a tenant farmer was, was a good deal. And these tenants would have been people who didn't own their own land. For whatever reason, they kind of missed out on the land grab. And they were without their own property. So for them, the options would have been slave or day labor, or uh, if you hit the good fortune to find somebody who would let you be a tenant farmer, you could have your own farm, right? So it was almost like being a landowner. You had freedom. You got to make choices. uh, You got to decide and kind of manage the property yourself. Uh, You didn't have the landowner telling you what to do, right? You got to decide. And if you managed it well and if you worked hard, uh, you would see increase in profits, right? The, the, the vineyard would go well, and if you applied your skill and did it well, uh, you would see profits, and you would be the beneficiary of those profits. You, know, you would get the result. Now, it's true you had to pay rent, uh, but that's okay. The, more, the better you did, uh, the more it would benefit you. And uh, uh, sometimes the landowners would, would charge a very high rent, even up to 50% of the crop. But we see that this landowner was very gracious, as we'll see in a minute, very kind, very generous, and it's very likely that he didn't charge an extraordinarily high rate, right? maybe 10 or 20% of the crop, which meant the rest of it was yours. And so this really was, uh, if you were not a landowner, this was the best possible scenario for you. And so we have this landowner who uh, uh, has very generously uh, invested in this First-class setup, and he's offered it to these tenant farmers, and he's uh, really given them an amazing opportunity. Um, but then notice what happens, right? It's time for the harvest. Uh, it's time to collect his payment, and he sends some messengers because he's, by the way, he's gone off uh, far away. So maybe he, you know, maybe he's in Jerusalem, right? Or maybe he's in another country, he's far away, and he uh, sends the messengers to collect his fruit. Um, uh, his payment, and, and it says that uh, uh, they are not treated well, right? Uh, when the season for fruits drew near, he sent his servants to them, and he, the attendants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Um, uh, they are not treated well, right? Um, uh, they, they, they are... They are greatly mistreated, right? And um, 
And yet, um, so how should he respond, right? Uh, what does this mean, right? So, so, so what would we expect? So here's, here's the deal. These tenant farmers have been set up with this really good deal. What would we expect is the treatment they should get, right? How would we assume they would, they would respond to such a kind and generous offer? Well, what we would hope for, what we would look for, uh, would be gratitude, right? Uh, we would think they would think, man, this landowner has given us an incredible opportunity here. He has set us up for the chance for us to really take charge and take control of our life. And yet, uh, they do not respond with gratitude, do they? They are not grateful. In fact, they are terrible. Right? They are terrible. This guy sends his servants, and, and they beat them up and kill them and stone them. And of course, Jesus here is making reference. Uh, of course, we know that the, the vineyard is, is Israel. Uh, the laborers would be uh, the, the, the leaders over, I mean, the, the tenant farmers would be the leaders over Israel, uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes. Um, and the messengers would be the prophets. And throughout the Old Testament era, the prophets, the messengers of God had been greatly mistreated. Um, and, and that's the picture that's, that's given here. Uh, they are mistreated. Uh, now, if, if, if you have any sense of justice, right, you would think, well, when he sent the first batch of messengers, what would be the right thing, the, the just response of this landlord? Like, what could he have done? Well, what most people would expect is that he would call the police, right? Uh, call, call for justice, Say, this is not right. This is not fair and right treatment. I am being, I am being dishonored and disrespected, and my, my servants have been abused and mistreated and killed. Let's get these guys, and I'm going to kick them off. I'm going to uh, have them sentenced and tried, and, and surely they would receive perhaps the death sentence, but get them out of my property, and I'm going to find different uh, farmers to lease my land. But that is not what this landlord does. It says instead that, um, uh, verse, uh, verse 36, again, he sent other servants more than the first. Right? Wow. He uh, does not just uh, respond with justice, but he shows amazing patience and restraint. Right? Uh, he shows amazing patience and restraint. Um, but... These guys get the same treatment, same exact treatment. Um, and one has to ask, what is this landlord's motive? Why does he do this? Right? Why does he not get rid of these terrible people and get some more grateful uh, farmers to rent his property? Well, certainly it's not for his own benefit. Like if he was looking out for his own interest, the, the most obvious and logical thing to do would be to get rid of those guys. Get somebody in there who's going to give him what he deserves, what is his portion, his rent. Right? Uh, so if he doesn't do that, why is he doing it? Well, only one explanation. Because he wants to give them a chance to do the right thing. Right? He cares about the farmers. And he doesn't want to just destroy them. He doesn't want to rain down his justice on them that he could. He wants them to do the right thing. He wants a better outcome for them. Um, 
And so he gives them yet another chance. Uh, And it really is an amazing picture. And we see here um, this picture of of God who is incredibly patient and gracious with sinful people. And we know uh, Israel, this is a great account of Israel. And in fact, this this account uh, comes out of Isaiah chapter 5, where uh, Isaiah prophesied of Israel the same thing. Uh, it uses a lot of the same descriptions that, they, that, the, that God had set up this amazing vineyard, um, but they had proven unfaithful. And yet for hundreds of years, God had been so patient. And over and over again, he sent prophets to warn them and to call them back and to give them every opportunity to respond with the gratitude and thankfulness that he was looking for, the fruit of praise. The fruit of honor is what God was looking for. Um, but God is so gracious, right? Um, but of course, um, the story doesn't end there. It says, it says finally, uh, he sent his son to them. As a last resort, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Right? Surely, they will respect my son. Maybe they did not respect the slaves. Maybe they didn't respect my messengers. But my son will be different because he is, is, is my own flesh and blood. Surely they will respect him. But what happens? Well, they took him. When they saw him, uh, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and we'll have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Uh, The sad reality is they they have no respect for the son. And they see him only as the heir, and they have this crazy plot in their mind. They think, look, he's the heir. If we get rid of the heir, then this land will become ours. Now, there's a flaw in the logic here, right? Because the landlord's not dead, right? Kill the son, the landlord's still living. So we don't know maybe if they thought, well, he's old and he's going to die off soon. Or I don't know what they were thinking. But it was kind of a flawed plan. And maybe not very well thought out. And maybe they should have been thinking, what happens if the landlord comes back, right? But uh, what's interesting is uh, the patience and, and, and kindness of the landlord has not made them favorable, has not made them more respectful. It's made them even take more for granted. And maybe they thought, well, this guy's not going to do anything. We'll just take his land. And instead of being grateful, they want it for themselves. They want everything. And of course, during this time, um, of course, and and throughout history, right, uh, tenant farmers have not liked the landlords, right? And oftentimes they feel cheated and ripped off. Uh, they feel like, well, I should be the landowner, right? It should belong to me. Why do I have to pay rent to this guy? I'm doing all the work, right? And, and that attitude was certainly true in Jesus' day, uh, as many of the landowners were very oppressive. Um, and, and these guys, that's what they decide. No, we're just going to kill the son, and, and then we're just going to, it's going to belong to us. It's going to become ours, um, but Jesus asks this question, uh, and he asks it to the, the, the chief priests and the, the Pharisees and the leaders who are standing there. 
What will the landlord do? When he returns, when he comes back, what will he do to those tenant farmers? And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't give the, the judgment. Instead, the chief priests, and remember, the chief priests are the landlords, right? So these guys are probably getting pretty fired up. Like they're thinking, man, if that happened to me, what would I do? Well, I would not have been, that. what they're thinking is, I would not have given him the second chance or the third chance. I wouldn't have sent my son. I would have dealt with these losers from the beginning, right? That's what they're thinking. And I love their answer. It says, what would, what would they do? And they reply, um, uh, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their season. I love that. They're, the, those wretches, they're miserable death. Again, it's not just he'll, he'll deal justly with those guys. No, these, 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 uh, these chief priests, these religious leaders are pretty fired up. Those wretches, those terrible people. Horrible people. Um, uh, the, the Greek here has the idea of the w- wickedly wicked, right? The wickedly wicked. These are bad dudes, and you need to get rid of them. And, and you need to get rid of them in a terrible way. Like, like not, not just put them in jail. No, you need to destroy them with, with vengeance, right? They think it's terrible. And it really is, right? It really is terrible with these what these wicked farmers are doing. Um, and it really is what they deserve, right? And it just highlights uh, the incredible nature of God's grace, right? That he was so patient with them. And ironically, these guys don't even see that, that, that it's about them, right? That it's about them, that they're these wickedly wicked people. They're the wretches, and they don't see it yet. They're going to see it in a minute. They don't see it yet. But what a reminder of God's grace, right? He does not judge like he could. He does not destroy like he has every right to. He is patient. And he's patient because he wants to give them a chance to respond differently. Right? Uh, the last important point is that God will destroy, right? Uh, God will judge. When he comes... He will put to death those uh, who mistreat his son. Right? Uh, his great love and his great patience and grace does not cancel out his wrath towards those who reject his son. There is a limit to his patience. Right? There is a line which you go, you go too far. Right? So that's what it tells us about God. It also tells us though, some important things about Jesus. Uh, and Jesus continues on, and he uh, is speaking with them. And he says to them in verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Uh, I love that Jesus again asked them, Have you never read the Bible? He's speaking to the religious leaders uh, who, who have read the Bible. But what's even more significant about this passage is this passage uh, is quoted from Psalm 118. And uh, if you know uh, much about the Psalms, Psalm 118 is the, the end of what's called the Hallel Psalms. And during Passover, every year, they would recite the whole Hallel, this whole uh, series of Psalms. I believe it's 115 to 118. 
I'm not sure on the exact, the exact, don't quote me on the exact numbers, but it ends with Psalm 118. So not only had they read it, but year after year after year, they would have recited these words, right? And in fact, just, just when Jesus came in in the triumphal entry, the crowds were calling out these, uh, this very psalm, Hosanna to the Son of David, right? also comes from Psalm 118. These guys knew this, and so Jesus is, is kind of... Um, Mocking them a little, be kind of like me saying to you, "Have you never sung Amazing Grace?" <laughs> well, yes, you have, right? That's kind of the, the effect that this would have. Have you never read these words? Well, of course they had. Of course they knew them. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Uh, and here Jesus basically interprets this parable, uh, uh, and, and what he says here is that. That, that, that rejected one is, is, is the preeminent one. Right? The one that got rejected is the one that becomes the cornerstone. And, and Jesus, uh, by quoting the scriptures, uh, is applying this parable to himself. And he's saying, look, I am, this, I am the son. I am the rejected one. I am the one that you are trying to reject. And I am rejecting, uh, being rejected because I am the son you're the, you're, you are the, the farmers, and I am the son that you were rejecting. And not just a son, but the son of God. Right? And this is first, uh, Jesus' first all-out public declaration that he's the son of God. It was subtle. Uh, it may be, be well be that a lot of people didn't understand exactly what Jesus was saying. But the implications of Jesus here are clear. I am the stone that the builders rejected. Right? I am that son that you have disgraced. And I am that son who came, sent by the Father. The Father is the great landlord, the Lord of heaven and earth. And I come in his power and in his authority uh, as his son. And it is a claim uh, to deity, right? As we look back uh, through the whole context of the gospel and the scripture, we know that Jesus is claiming here to be God's son, the heir, the one who is due the same honor and respect uh, that is due the Father. Um, but not only is Jesus the Son, Jesus also declares in this that he, though rejected, will be exalted. Right? Uh, he makes it clear that, and, and in his parable, uh, Jesus is basically telling these guys what they're going to do to him. Uh, he's saying, you're going to kill me. Right? And, and rejected doesn't just mean they don't, they don't re-elect him. <laughs> It doesn't mean that they get kicked off the reality TV show. That means gets gets kicked off planet Earth. Right? They are rejecting him permanently by killing him, that they will nail him to the cross, as Jesus has predicted over and over again. And now he's telling it right to their face by means of this parable. Uh, you, you are going to reject me. You are going to kill me, just like you, you killed, like the farmers killed the son. That's what you're going to do to me. Um, but there's more to the story, right? Not only will they kill him, but he says that the rejected stone becomes the cornerstone or the capstone. Uh, literally in the Greek, the word here is the head of the corner, the rock or the stone that is the head of the corner. Uh, and there's some debate on, on how to translate that. Is it the cornerstone? The cornerstone would have been a large stone in the foundation on the corner, of course, right? Um, or the capstone. The capstone was also a cornerstone, but it was actually on the top of a wall where two walls came together, and it tied the two walls together. Uh, but it was the very top top stone. Right? 
Uh, you can take your pick. Uh, certainly, you know, the church has been built on the foundation of Christ. Um, but there's something in this image to, to, uh, uh, that gives it to this idea of being the head, the top. And literally, as I said in the Greek, it's called, it's called the headstone, right? The, the head of the corner. Uh, and the idea being that it's the most exalted, that Jesus would, would, would take the highest place uh, on the building, on the temple, right? That he would be exalted to the, to the top. And it's a, it's a prophecy, again, subtle, not, not clear, not obvious, but it's a prophecy where Jesus is saying, he uh, is going to be exalted. He's rejected. They will kill him, but he will be exalted. He will be resurrected. And he will ascend into heaven where he will reign on high in the highest place of honor. Um, so Jesus looks, looks forward to the day when he will be vindicated through the resurrection. He will be shown to be right. Uh, but even beyond that, what, what, what the psalm tells us is that this was the Lord's doing. Um, don't pass over those words, right? This was the Lord's doing. Um, over and over, we've seen as Jesus marches day by day closer to the cross, that uh, really Jesus is the one orchestrating the events, right? He's the one confronting the leaders. Uh, he's the one uh, who is not making them happy with himself, right? He's not building bridges of peace here. Uh, he is full on confronting them, and he's saying, look, you are going to kill me. I know your plan better than you do. I'm telling you what you're going to do. And you don't even know what you're going to do yet, but I, I know what you're going to do. Why? Because it is the Lord's doing. Right? This was God's plan to redeem all those who believe from sin and from death and judgment. Right? This was God's way to save us from sin and death. Redemption by means of rejection. Uh, a rejection that resulted... Uh, in our salvation. And you see, sin has caused us to be rejected by God. Right? Uh, God must reject us because we have rejected Him. Right? Because we are those who have uh, put to death His Son through our sin. And yet, because Jesus came and was rejected, we are, we are accepted. Right? Uh, no longer are we rejected by God, but we are, we are accepted. And it's marvelous to see. Right, this, is a, this, is, this is a wonderful plan of God, surprising in every way, that the way God chose to save the world was not uh, with huge armies, not with might and with force, but God chose to save us by being rejected. I love reading Isaiah 53. I could read Isaiah 53 every time we have communion, right? Because it's just such an amazing picture of Jesus who was despised and rejected, who took on himself our grief and our sorrow, who was crushed for our iniquity, who was pierced for our sin. Right? That's the wonder of God's plan, that he saved us not uh, through glory and splendor and uh, power, but by being rejected and despised and condemned. Uh, the wonder of the cross. It was in Jesus' day a symbol of, of ultimate rejection, but it has become for us the 
great symbol of our salvation. And we should marvel at the goodness and grace of God, which he's displayed at the cross. Uh, this passage also tells us a couple of things about Israel, and I'm not going to go into great detail here because, um, because we're not Israel. But, but what the parable tells us and what he's telling Israel is that they have a rebel's heart, right? Uh, truly, these farmers were wretches. They, they were wickedly wicked. They had, and they were wickedly wicked because not only had they done bad things, but they had responded to such kindness with absolute ingratitude and dishonor and murder. Right? That, that really is just a whole new level of wicked, a whole new level of, of, of evil, of selfishness. Right? And the real issue in all this is this. When the sun came, they realized they weren't content to uh, even just not pay, not pay what they owed. Uh, what they decided is, look, we could be the landowners. Right? And, and, and this is the core of, of our sinfulness. Uh, they're saying here, look, we could, be, we could be our own boss. We could get rid of God. We could be God. And that was the sin that goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve said, look, we could be, Satan said to them, you could be like God. And they thought that was a good idea. And, and that's, why they, uh, that's why they killed Jesus. Because ultimately, they wanted to be God. Right? Uh, they did not want to accept uh, the God who they claimed to worship as Lord over them. Uh, they wanted to be in charge. And the result of that, Jesus says in verse 43, is that you will lose the kingdom. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who produce its fruits. Um, God had been patient forever, but in killing the son, that was the last straw. Right? And they would be judged. Um, and ironically, uh, the priests begin to understand what Jesus is saying here. And at the end it says, the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable. They perceived he was speaking about them. So it finally dawns on them what this is about, and they get it. They're the evil farmers. Jesus is talking about them. But instead of responding with repentance and saying, oh, Lord, what have we, what have we done? We're that evil, wicked person. Instead, they, they actually fulfill what the parable says. And they plot how they can kill Jesus, the Son. Right? Even though they understand, they refuse to change. Finally, this tells us a couple of things about us. Uh, two things about us as we, as we close. And the first one is the simple question, what will you do with Jesus? Right? What will you do with Jesus? Verse 44 says this, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Um, there's two options for what we can do with Jesus. Uh, one is that we make him master and Lord over our life. Or we reject him as Lord and master and we make ourselves Lord over our own life. And there's really no other options. There's no middle ground. Jesus is either Lord and Master of our life, or I am. And to make myself Lord and Master of my own life is to reject Christ. And Jesus then becomes a rock of destruction. 
And it doesn't matter if you fall on the rock or if it falls on you. Either way, the results are the same. It's bad. Right? It's bad. But, but for those uh, who, who make him Lord, he, he is Savior. Right? He is Savior. So, so we can make ourselves Lord, we can reject Jesus, and we will be destroyed by him. Or we can make him Lord over our life, and he will save us. Uh, verse 43, he says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Uh, and this picture is the fact that God is going to take the kingdom away from Israel. He did take the kingdom away from Israel. Not because he gave up on Israel. But he says, I'm going to give it to a, a people, literally in, in the Greek, a nation, who will produce its fruit. A community of people who will uh, not reject the Son, but will receive him and accept him and make him Lord. And now uh, Israel is invited to be God's people, but not through their own kingdom. They come through the church. Uh, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles alike, who acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior, and they put their faith and trust in him. Uh, but the question is, are we producing fruits, right? He wants to give it to a people who will give him his fruit in its season. Uh, what are the fruit that God looks from us? Well, I think there's three. There's probably more, but here's three. First, uh, God is looking for the fruit of gratitude, right? Uh, are we truly grateful for what God has done for us? Right? Or do we just take it for granted? Right? Uh, we have to be a people who, who are overflowing with thankfulness. And, and I hope that's why we come on Sunday morning, because we are thankful and we want to worship God. Uh, second fruit, I think, is honor. These, these, these horrible farmers uh, gave no honor to the, to the master, no honor to his servants. Um, I think we, uh, God, God wants us to honor him through our worship. Worship is, is declaring God's worthiness. It's giving to him the honor of what he deserves. Right? And we, we need to do that. And the third fruit is the fruit of obedience. Uh, John said that they needed to show the signs of the fruit of repentance, which was a life of, of following God, following Jesus, and doing what was worthy of the king. Right? Those three things, gratitude, honor, and obedience. Are those the, things, are those the fruit that characterize our life uh, for this Lord who has done so much for us? Right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you um, came knowing fully that you would be rejected and knowing how far that rejection would go. Uh, Lord Jesus, as you confronted these leaders, you knew they were going to kill you. And you didn't run or hide. You didn't try to make them like you. Uh, you just spoke the truth. Because you knew this wasn't man's doing. You knew it was the Father's plan. It was God's doing. And it was the Father's plan to save us and give us new life through your death. Uh, Lord, thank you so much. And, and Lord, we pray that we would truly...
be people who are constantly grateful. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for the times when we complain and grumble and we fail to recognize the wonder of the cross. It is wonderful. It is marvelous, this thing that God has done. Lord, forgive us when we fail to, to see the wonder and fail to be thankful. Uh, Lord, may we choose you. Lord, help us to truly make uh, Jesus Lord of our life. And forgive us where we want to be the land, the landowner, the landlord uh, over our own life. Where we want to be in control of everything. Where all that you've given us is not enough. Lord, forgive us. And may we be a people who truly do uh, acknowledge you as Lord. And yet you're not a Lord who's made us slaves. You're a Lord who's made us uh, farmers who have great freedom and choice. Uh, and yet we take it so often for granted. And Lord, we pray finally that you would help us be a, a, a holy people. Lord, that we would walk in obedience, not to prove something, but out of gratefulness and gratitude for what you have done. And Lord, even now we pray that our, our worship would be a great offering of praise that delights you as we rejoice uh, with thankfulness in our hearts for what Jesus has done for us. We pray in his precious and holy name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.